So this week on the show, really honoured to have one of my favourite clients and I'd like to think friend as well, Pete Corielli, who you should, you know, if you haven't heard of, I don't know where you've been, but I've been a huge fan of Pete for ages. He's one of the most successful stand-ups uh, there at the moment and he runs a fantastic podcast with Sebastian Maniscalco and that's how I first you know, came across what he was doing. As I said, I've been a massive fan of, of Pete and his work and I'm fortunate enough to have the opportunity, to, you know, to work together. The reason why I wanted to get Pete on is I think, you know, he's a professional at the top of his field. He's been massively successful in what he does. But I've always been slightly curious because I think being a stand-up is one of the hardest jobs in the world. Typically because it's long hours, you have to be constantly inventing new material and you don't have the sort of protection of a team of people to go back to. And seeing as he's, like I said, done this consistently for his whole career and made a success of it, I think there's going to be lots that he can share with the group that will be full of value. So thank you for coming on, Pete. Thank you for having me, Thad. You're And you're right, as I was saying, we are. We've be, gone beyond professional friendship and gone into regular friendship. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So I appreciate you having me here. And I'm looking forward to getting into this, you know, for anyone that really wants to know what it's like to do what I do and to be a comic, you know, because usually when we do any kind of an interview of any capacity, uh, you know, it's like literally if you were interviewing a clown and the clown didn't feel like juggling, you'd be like, fucking juggle, please. So, you know, we're always expected to be funny all the time. Whereas in this environment here, it's nice to be able to explain everything, too. Yeah, that's I know, I've heard that's the nightmare, isn't it? So it's kind of you do breakfast TV and it's like, so, you know, be funny. And it's like... <laughs> When someone said, okay, tell me a joke, yeah. it's awful because it's like, well, I can't think of one now. And that's not how my comedy works, but, you know. It, well, you know, it's like, it's funny because on one hand you do feel like that, but we have all, you included, right? We watch TV shows and stuff. And when you see one of your favorite comedians come on and he's not being funny for a moment or something, yeah, come on, be funny. Like, you, that's what you want. It's, mm. You could have a rock star come on and do an interview and you're not going to yell at the TV, sing! Yes, yeah. <laughs> but with us... There's always so even like when I got my first big uh, show where to possibly have my own sitcom, I did this stand-up show at a festival, and I did really well. It's called the Montreal Comedy Festival. They have it every year, and it's for the industry to come out. And it's supposed to be a celebration of comedy, but it becomes more of who's who and and who's here and who's making deals. So there's a big show there and I did really great. And then I had to go out to Los Angeles because all the big TV networks in America were interested in possibly making my show. So I said to my manager, okay, so when I go into these meetings, you know, we're just going to talk and see if it'll work out. And they go, well, no, you got to go in there and you got to kill in the meeting. You got to be really funny, as funny as you can be. You need to show them how funny you are and why they would want to do a TV show with you. And I go, isn't that what we did at Montreal? Yeah. Like, didn't we just do that? I killed there and they go, this guy's funny. Bring him over. But no, even in the meeting, you still have to be funny. It's like, it's just bizarre to me. So yeah, there is never an off switch, it seems, for comedians. Yeah. And also with musicians, they have that thing of, like, they just play the hits. So it's kind of like, you're just doing, if you, I'd never known, like, a comedian who can get away with, like, the same 20 jokes for years. And that's it. It's like you have to constantly make be funny, but it's always something new, isn't it? You've got to surprise me every time. Yeah, you, you really do. But it, even that becomes a slippery slope because I've over the past few years, I've finally gotten to the point where people come back to see me. You know, like when I first started to headline on the road, it was just a comedy club would book me and the comedy club knew nobody knew me. 
So they would just try to get people to come out to the show and they'd go, oh, this guy's pretty good. We saw a good show. But now it's gotten to the point where people come to the clubs where I'm going to play. They come out of their way. Pete Corelli's back in town. Let me go see him. So to your point, you're like, man, I need new stuff. I need new stuff. And then what happens, I can't tell you how much this happens. You get off stage and one person will come up to you and go, oh, what a great show. I love all the new stuff. But man, I was really hoping you do that bread bit. I brought my whole family. We've been talking about that. And I would have loved to see that again. And you go, oh, I'm sorry. And then the next show you do the bread bit and a guy comes up to you and goes, I saw the bread bit again. I mean, yeah, I still love that bit. But the new stuff was great. I wish you did more of that. So you, <laughs> I still haven't found the balance. Um, yeah, Sebastian Maniscalco. Yeah, my buddy Sebastian, as you know, Thad, from the podcast, who's even much more success than me right now, selling out everywhere. I asked him, and this is kind of how sometimes comedians get advice. And he said, well, I asked Jerry. And Jerry Seinfeld said, the most important thing is to do what you're going to enjoy doing on that stage. Because if you're not enjoying yourself, then no one's going to enjoy themselves. Mm -hmm. So if it's, uh, you know, and usually that means your best stuff. So then Sebastian said that he tends to, he goes, I do that. I do what I enjoy doing and what I want to do. But I also try to give him at least 20 new minutes. That's about what I've been doing now. I usually give him about 25 to 30 new minutes, but I make sure I give him a solid you know, 20 minutes of old stuff, but the stuff that I particularly want to do. Mm -hmm. Now, Brian Regan, another fantastic American stand-up comedian who's just like literally one of the top 10 probably of all time. I open for him sometimes, and what he does is kind of neat, is he'll do all new stuff, right? And they all love it. And then me being the MC, I come back out and go, how about it for Brian Regan? And they all applause. And then I go, hey, would you like to see a little more? How about a little more? And I make it seemed like it was my idea but meanwhile it's totally planned regan's off to the side sipping his water and then he comes out and for the next like five to ten minutes they just yell out old bits of his that they love and he'll do a couple of them but he does all old stuff but only at the end for the encore oh, See, i'm nice. afraid i'll come out for an encore and i'll go hey you guys want to hear some of the old stuff now and they go hey i don't even remember it <laughs> <laughs> so creative point of view when was it that you kind of started to fall into comedy and did you have sort of a career that you were in that maybe you hated and you left to do this how did that all come about no comedy is pretty much all I ever did but when I was a kid my dad was an architect my mom was a school teacher I had a really normal childhood great childhood and only thing with comedy was really into it but so was my brother and seemingly my friends so like you know we would get you know whenever a comedian came on the TV we were always watching oh we yell out in the house comedian comedian because they they weren't on a lot and then like Eddie Murphy came on the scene when I was a kid and I remember playing his albums and they were dirty and and then I got older and Dice came around and we all loved Dice and so I've always appreciated comedy and the first time I really started to see it beyond just stand up when I was in high school one time and we went out to drink some beers like we always do me and some friends, it was raining. So there was no parties or anything. So I said, let's just go to a record store. We'll buy a CDs at the time. I go, we'll buy a comedy album and we'll just sit in the Datsun. We'll smoke pot and drink beer. So we bought uh, Stephen Wright and his first album was called, I have a pony. This is a joke where he says, my apartment allows you to have pets. I have a pony, you know, and his, just, his dry sense of humor is just so fantastic. And we listened to it like twice in the car. We're laughing so hard. But I remember thinking like, 
man, this isn't just guys going up, grabbing a mic and just, you know, being funny. These are, these are like really well-crafted jokes. So I loved comedy, but I just never thought of it as something I could do. Like I, like my family, we were raised with, you know, get your medical benefits, get your college degree and all that. So I went to college where I was playing basketball, division three, no scholarship. And I had to take a, uh, needed some extra credit. So I took this class called acting for non-majors. So, cause there's a theater department at my school, but if you wanted to take an acting class without being a theater major, you would take this. I'll never forget the first day of acting class. We're all sitting in the chairs and this old guy had to be like 83, 85 comes wobbling in with a cane. And he's like, welcome to the class. And your teacher, your professor will be here soon. And let me just tell you about the dedication of acting. And I'm like, who the fuck is this old guy? And then by the end of his monologue, he pulls off the beard and the glasses and everything. And it's the freaking acting teacher who's like in his mid. And, you know, he's a trained actor. And just his way of saying this is how powerful acting can be. And I was like, holy shit, guy. I thought you were an 83-year-old man. So... I enjoyed that class, but it really only made me want to be a movie star. I was going to be a, go and try and get into acting. You know, wanted to be a movie. So I went back to New York, and I got a job working front desk at a hotel, which I would have got anyway. My sister works in the hotel business. She's a big dog, and she got me the job. It was just to live in the city. And the idea was to try and be an actor, but I really wasn't doing anything. I wasn't taking acting classes. I just got some headshots made, and I'd go on these long audition cattle calls that you'd see in the paper. I mean, absolutely nothing going on. And then after like two years of mostly just working the front desk at a hotel, drinking a lot of beer and pretending I'm trying to be an actor, I uh, went on this audition where I hooked up with these guys and gals that were doing an improv group. Uh, what the hell were we called? The Boomtown Players. That was the name of the intro- improv group. They let me be a part of it. And, you know, improv is what it is. And we'd rehearse and stuff. And then we did like three shows and every show we did was at a terrible dumpy comedy club in New York City. And we'd be on at like five o'clock in the afternoon. Comedy shows don't even start till like 730. We'd be on from five to six in an empty comedy club. And the only people would be there would be like our friends and family. And there'd be like 10 people. After the third one. At the third comedy club, again, all my, the guys I with, they're all going to go out for some beers, all the improv people. And I said to the owner of the club, you know, if I pay for my beer, can I just sit here and watch the comedy show? Because I saw some of the people coming in and the comics coming in. And he's like, yeah, sure. And I'm telling you, by the first comedian, halfway through, my jaw was dropped. I didn't think he was funny, but I just knew, holy shit, I want to do this. And then I went off to the side where all the comics were. And you can hear them talking, are you going to do that bit tonight? You should add this. And they had notebooks. And I'm like, whoa, look at this. They're all going over their shit. Oh, my God. This is so, and I was just so excited. Uh, it was like, it was just love at first sight. I mean, absolute burning passion. And that's all I wanted to do. And like the next day, I was finding open mics. And for the next you know year, I would do open mics wherever I could. And when I'm working front desk at the hotel, I would be writing jokes at the desk when no one was looking, pretending I was filling out, you know, notes for the job stuff. And then about a year after doing that, this comedy club that I do open mics at, the owner said, do you want to mop my floors? Because the last guy who did it can't do it anymore. And you help out in the back, in the kitchen, you know, just like throwing garbage out. You mop the floors and I'll put you up every night on the show last 
Now, just getting stage time was gold. So I m had a college degree, but here I was mopping the floor and working for free just to get on stage every night. And for like a year and a half, nobody saw me. I didn't go hang out with any friends or anything. And I just did stand up, stand up, stand up. And I was terrible, but, but I loved it. And I knew I was growing slowly, slowly, you know, and that's the beginning of it. And I say it all in detail like that, because anyone out there listening that they always say, what is it? What do I do? I want to be a comedian. Well, the most important thing is if you don't have that kind of passion, if you don't have that desire that I just explained, then don't even bother because the only thing that is going to get you through so many times when it gets so dark and gloomy is the fact that you just love it so much that you just cannot imagine a life where you're not doing stand-up comedy. Mm -hmm. And then if you feel that way about it, then you can listen on to me and Thad about the other aspects. <laughs> No, but that's interesting because you were saying like you'd obviously you've been to college and your parents were obsessed with kind of getting a stable sort of life and your health plan and all that. And your sisters sort of, you know, doing quite well in the hotel industry. So did that add to the pressure? Did you feel any pressure from them? Not directly from them, but did that how was that balancing that kind of well, I probably should be getting a job where I can build up and rise up the ladder versus but I just absolutely love this and it's not paying well and it doesn't make sense but i love it to my parents credit they said just get a college degree and once you have a college degree my father said i don't care if you go dig ditches you do whatever you want i just want you to have a college degree so you have options mm -hmm. and then they had been supportive since day one when i did stand up but what was interesting was i worked front desk seven in the morning till three at night three in the afternoon right like five yeah. days a week what i would do is after I got off at three o'clock, I go back to my apartment, my little dumpy apartment, take a quick nap. And then I had to be at the comedy club by about six o'clock at night. And I'd be there till like 12, one in the morning. And then I go home, get a little sleep and go back to the hotel. But I was doing my front desk job. I was doing that fine. So then about two and a half years in, into everything, my the GM of the hotel came up to me and he's like, we want to offer you if you're interested the job of front desk night manager. What that means is I would come in at three o'clock at night in the afternoon and I'd work till midnight, but I'd get a huge raise in salary and I would be, uh, in essence, after 5 p.m. at night, the person in charge of the entire hotel. And this is four story, I mean, a 35 story sky rise, four star hotel in Manhattan. And then, of course, my sister and my parents are like, Man, if you do that well, the next thing could possibly be GM of a hotel. That's how quick you can go because they really look for guys with charisma and women with charisma. It's not just the smartest person in the room. There's a lot that goes on in the hotel industry. And I've seen some of these GMs at the other hotels that we have like a chain of them there in the city. These are young guys. They get a free hotel room. They get to eat at the restaurant every night. Some of them are single. You know, it's a, it's a really... To, to just kind of step in that world accidentally, I was like, whoa, this could be nice. So I said, I'll take the job. And I knew I would only be able to do stand-up two nights a week because the other five nights I'd be doing this. But whatever, man, I'll still do a little stand-up. So that night I went back home. You know, I went and did some stand-up that night, and I got back to my apartment. And again, I was still like three or four years away from making any money, like even 50 bucks to do stand-up. I wasn't doing paid shows at this point. But still, I knew I loved it so much. I was like, I can't do this, man. And I went back the next day and I went into the GM's office and I said, I'm sorry, I don't, I'm going to stay at my front desk job because I don't 
I want to keep trying to stand up. And if I take that job, I won't. And he said, no problem. But in the future, don't ever say yes to something until you're absolutely sure, you know, because now I have to re-interview people and stuff. I was like, I'm so sorry. But I am not kidding you, man. About seven years ago, I was doing a sold out show in New York City. And he was at the show and he came up and he's like, son of a bitch, I saw all your specials. You're so great, man. Remember that crossroads? I was like, I can't believe you remember. He's like, hell, I remember. You almost went the other way. And I was like, yeah, I know, right? So, again, it's just you got to just go for it. I have a friend, Judah Freelander. He was on 30 Rock. He was like the guy, if you ever seen that American sitcom, with the big yeah. beard. And the, yeah. So he went to college, too. And what he did for stage time is he would give out flyers down in the Wall Street area to anyone walking by to come to, for whatever comedy club he was working at. Like, I think it was the comic strip. So he, the comic strip would have him go down there every day for three hours and give out flyers. And then they'd put him on at night for free. And he remembers, he's telling me how, like, guys he went to college with would come walking by in suits, making great money. And here he is in dirty jeans and a baseball cap, giving away flyers at lunchtime. And they're like, what are you doing, dude? But that's the you know, that's what you do to get on stage, because if you don't do that, the only other way you can get on stage is if you bring 10 paying customers to your show. And I mean, shit, I, I didn't I wasn't going to like try and recruit friends. I needed to get on every single night, man. So, yeah, that's interesting because it is. And because I think when I had that, when I was getting into advertising, it was this thing of you had to keep saying no to the jobs that were offered you because you wanted to hold out for what you really wanted to do. And a, a guy who was doing our portfolio, he said the same sort of thing. He said, "You, all of your friends will get jobs and you'll be really downhearted because they'll have, be having a great time and earning money. But he said, in a year and a half, when you've landed your dream job, they'll be sick of theirs and they'll be so jealous of you. So you have to kind of stay the path and keep going. And like you said, for you to have the wherewithal yeah. to know that actually no this hotel isn't for this the hotel hierarchy isn't for me and to give that up when that's a huge opportunity is fantastic and like I say that's a really nice way to end it with the guy actually turning up at one of your shows and seeing you yeah Robert Tully he's a good guy man that's yeah, an yeah. amazing story that's fantastic and so like you said it's very much about passion it's a very much you've got to to love it and you've got to be really committed and it's kind of not logical when it comes to, I guess, that thing of staying creative is always one thing. I mean, it's always a challenge sort of coming up with ideas for things. How do you stay creative? What is it that you do even now you yeah. know, to, to still generate ideas? You know, and this is interesting because, you know, it's like anything else. This is where what we're starting to talk about now is where the passion is one thing. But then if you don't start to have the way, like I've seen guys who love stand up more than anything, but they, they're still terrible. So I respect that they keep doing it, but just loving it isn't enough. And this is kind of where I feel like I've gotten kind of exceeded is in writing. As far as writing, it's interesting because when you first start out, it's probably like a songwriter. Every time they try to write a song, halfway through they realize they're writing some famous song in their head that they didn't realize. So as a comic, you, you, know, you tend to like mimic guys that you particularly like. Uh, like I did a little dice for a while and then I was doing Dave Chappelle for a while. Like I didn't mean to, I just admired them. and was watching them and it's mm -hmm. all just happening at shitty venues, like dumpy comedy clubs. Nobody's seeing me. I'm not getting paid. It's, you know, it's a whole different world of comedy, you know, at the beginning and it's all part of the process. But one thing that really, I always remember stuck out to me was comic. His name was Steve Marshall. And quite frankly, 
this guy hasn't gone, he hasn't really done much of anything. You know, it's not like I'm about to tell you a story about, oh, Jerry Seinfeld gave me the best piece of advice ever. Mm. This guy, Steve Marshall, is this comic who was doing it longer than me, but whatever. He was hosting a show when I was mopping and sweeping the floors at the comedy club. I go, I'm talking to him before I go on that night. And I go, oh, I'm having such a tough time, Steve, coming up with funny stuff, you know? I, I just really don't know how to write. And he goes, I'll never forget. He goes, get a pen, get a piece of paper. I just got to bring up the next comedian and I'll come back. I want to talk to you. So he comes back and he goes, all right, just write down for me. Just write down a couple things that you did today. Just write them down. Uh, I go, what do you mean? He goes, well, actually, just tell them to me first. How about that? And I go, okay. He goes, what'd you do? And I go, well, for lunch, I went to get a hot dog today. And I went out of the hotel today to get a lunch hot dog from one of the lunch carts. And then I was online to buy one. I remembered the lunch cart on the other side of the street sells them for 50 cents less. So I went over there, got one from there. And he goes, boom, right there. See, I didn't even ask you to be funny. You're just telling me something that happened. I'm like, dude, you're right. Like, and then, I, and then I go on stage that night and I go, yeah, what's with the guy selling his hot dogs for 50 cents more on the other side of the street? What's on your side of the street? And I mean, I didn't have a great bit, but I had a nugget. And his point was, we sit down as comedians and we try to write things like think of things that are funny, as opposed to just just think about your life and then just be aware of where the funny is as you're talking about your life. It's, you don't have to make it up. It's right there. It's right in front of us. It happens all the time. You're just not good enough yet, Pete, to see it, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I found that interesting because then, like, another comedian said to me once when I, uh, I go, I write all the time, but this is a few years later. I'm just not finding anything funny. And he goes, don't throw out those old notebooks because I bet you there's a lot of funny stuff in there. You're just not funny enough yet. You're just not good enough yet to bring it to the stage. And that was another phase because I was about eight years in and I was having another slump writing. And I said, you know, what? I'm going to go back to those old notebooks. And for like three weeks, all my other comic friends are like, dude, you got so much new shit. And I'm like, it's all from my old notebooks. It's all old shit. So it's just a, it truly. And then like, you know, you talk to Sebastian Maniscalco and uh, he doesn't write anything. You know, he goes on every night and just remembers what he said and says it a little different the next night. Patrice O'Neill, God rest his soul, one of the best ever, big, you know, big old Patrice. He never wrote anything. And if he said something funny on stage, like if I, if I do something funny and I have my recorder, I'll, re- I'll go back and I'll find what I said that I never said before. I'm go, oh, that was funny. I got to write that down. Patrice would say, if it's funny, if it's really funny, I'll remember it. And if I forget it, then that means it wasn't that funny. You know, and it's not really always true because I say something on a show and I'm like, I know I said something, I don't remember it. And I go back and listen to it and I go, oh, that's great. And I write it down and I keep saying it moving forward and it does awesome. So, but if I didn't write it down, I would have forgot it. So Patrice's method doesn't work for me, but my point is every comedian has a different method and and it's, it's really a never ending process. Some of the best jokes I've ever come up with that just, I was on the phone with a buddy one time and we're talking about having sex with our wives. And I go, sometimes my wife is just laying there like she's trying to get a tan and I'm blocking her son. And it was just something I said and it became word for word. I brought it to the stage and it would kill for years and years. And then other jokes are a really long grind that, you know, just slowly but gradually they get funnier and better and better. And, and you know, and each one has its own story. It's kind of interesting after a while. 
Yeah, I like the idea. Like you say, it's kind of you're not ready to spot it yet. So it's it's there, but it's whether you recognise it. And I think that's always, I guess, reflecting it back to what I do. Creative directors are often the ones that can see. You always present all these ideas and you don't know what's good, but they'll often spot something you've completely overlooked and they'll be able to bring that out and go, that's the idea, that's brilliant. And it's kind of, it's that resilience to sort of accept that I've got to keep coming up with lots of ideas and new ways, but not throwing anything away just in case I can come back to it later. Yeah, and and with stand-up comedy, it's true. A lot of comedians, you know, they just think the work starts and ends on the stage and it doesn't, man. That's just part of it. Really, that's a small fraction of it because... You have to, like early on for me, another aspect too is it'd be comedians that would do really well at the clubs and get a lot of laughs and they're popular in the moment. But you're looking at what they're saying and what they're doing and you're like, it's long term. Are you going to want to keep doing that act the way you're doing it long term? You're going to want to keep being filthy like that or whatever it is they're being. And the best example was, I don't even want to name names just in case, but this buddy of mine, a comedian, we broke into the famous New York comedy seller at the same time mm. and when we were both young the lady loved us both who ran at SD so she would have me MC all the shows um, so I'd do 10 minutes up front and then like five two three minutes in between all night long and then she'd have my buddy close the show so I'd bring him up last because he was real dirty and he would make the crowd go crazy he was the king as we got going in there he was getting more laughs than me much more laughs than me but he was doing real dirty stuff and crowd-pleasing stuff for people drinking. And I was talking about my life and my relationship with my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, and just my life, you know? Mm. And then years and years later, I was doing a radio show, and he came on. And we've always stayed friends through the years. And he goes, man, Corielli, I, gotta, I went through some shit with you in my own head that you have no idea. And I just have to give you the biggest tip of the hat. And the other guy on the radio show was like, what, what is he talking about? He goes, no, let me explain. And he basically rehashes what I said. We broke into the comedy cellar at the same time. Pete MC'd, I closed, and I used to kill Pete. Did I not kill? And I go, yeah, no, you crushed, man. And he goes, and Pete did okay, you know, but, you know, I was crushing. And Pete was just, you know, he was doing okay, but he was doing stuff about his life. And I was, like, fingering my fucking fake pussy and all the, you know. And he goes, but what happened was through the years, Pete started getting better at talking about his life and started killing with that. And he goes, and then I started not doing as well with what I was talking about because there's nothing behind it. It was just bullshit to make the people laugh. It wasn't working my craft. It wasn't sharing my life. And I was getting disinterested in saying it and they could tell uh, until the point where now Pete started being funnier than me, but talking about his life. And so it made me go back to the drawing board and say, I want to do that. So I started to do what Pete was doing from the beginning. And I would take my bumps and bruises because it it's hard not to kill when you're used to killing. Mm. And I go, yeah, I know, dude. I Trust me, I know. And then now he's doing his whole all about his life, and he's doing great and fantastic up there. But it was like, it's almost like you know when you're cheating the system, but you don't want to admit it. You know, I like know another comic who would do a baby voice, but now he's 50, and it's creepy so <laughs> it's also having the wherewithal to think about why you're doing what you're doing up there and you know like what's the point of, of what you're doing you don't you know everyone has a different thing you know some people want to be political and make you think i don't i just want to make you laugh but i want to make you laugh talking about what i want to talk about mm. and the last thing is playing these clubs every night where you see the same dudes every night 
you know, something happens in current events, there's like five guys talking about it. And some of these guys are really, really good writers with within that stuff. So I'm like, well, I'm not going to I'm not going to compete with them. I'm just going to talk about my life because they can't steal that. They can't copy it because they're not living my life. And, and that really freed me up and kind of started to set me apart. And that's the kind of thing where I will give myself a little tip at a cap, too, for knowing back then that it's not the guy who's laughing, getting the biggest laughs all the time at the beginning. It's not, you know. Mm. And that's it's funny because you were sort of saying when you don't kill is an awful feeling. You know, you're trying out new material and that's part of like your development. You have to go through that stage. I'd imagine it's quite lonely. I think that for me, there's an overlap between when you're working for yourself or you're freelancing, you're on your own quite a lot. And I know that I've spoken to friends and they find that isolation quite hard to deal with, especially if they're looking at social media and there's that thing of, you know, you can't help but compare what other people are up to. Have, yeah. When you're traveling like long hours away from your family, that obviously that must be really tough, but how do you remain sort of upbeat or positive or is, is there anything you do to try and not let that bring you down? Because then you've got to go on stage and you, you can't be low energy. You know, you, the crowd are there to be entertained. So you kind of have to put that face on so is there a way that you yeah. manage that well i i will say this no matter how you feel and when you get on the stage usually that's you're not feeling that way anymore because that's the one time that you're like it all makes sense and you like being on stage and, and that sort of thing you know sometimes you get a little resentful when you're playing some place you feel like you don't have to be like when i used to play those cruise ships and I didn't want to be on those cruise ships. And I knew I was just another stop along the way in the night for these people. That that would make me mad because I'm like, I'm not a goddamn piano player. And you do have to put on a brave face for those, definitely. But, yeah, the road, it's, man, there's no easy answer to this. It's tricky. Everyone has their different way of dealing with it. You know, I know guys that, like, go out and about and, you know, see the town and all that. I, I don't do any of that. I try to take that time and. And, and use it to my advantage, especially when I have a kid now. So I try and work in the hotel room and whatnot. Yeah. But I think the biggest thing is tough to say. If, if you're not in a relationship, then I, I really don't think it's it's as sad as people think it is. I mean, yeah, you're alone, but you're only gone for four or five days at a time. You get to go home a little bit. And it's it's quite fun sometimes to, to just be in these little towns or these places that you never ever think you'd be in. But as you get older and you're still going back to these towns, you start to get scared. Holy shit. Am I going to be doing this till I'm 60? And, 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 and on the other hand, will they still want me at 60? But where it gets tricky is when you're in a relationship, because I've seen guys that and women that women that marry men, men that marry women that say they can handle this and it's fun and cool. And my wife or husband's a comedian. And then like, you know, five or six years in, the bloom is off the rose and their husband is not a huge star and they're kind of struggling and then they start leaning on them to get a real job or something. And then that makes it really hard when the person at home doesn't want you to be doing it. Mm. Luckily with my wife, she's always been awesome. And I remember like, she's been with me since the first joke I ever told pretty much. But I remember like seven or eight years in when I had a rough point in the career and you're barely making any money. And I go, I don't know, do I go get a real job? And she laughs. I'm like, it's so funny. She, she goes, uh, what would you do? You would be so miserable in a real job. I'm just laughing, thinking about you. So it was quite the opposite. She was saying you could never do a real job. You'd be miserable. You're a comedian. 
Mm. So that kind of support makes it a little easier. But, you know, some guys work out, some guys drink a lot, some guys read books. Sebastian rents a car and drives around the town. Uh, the road is the road, man. It can be lonely. And it's interesting because the first 10 years of your stand-up career, you're not lonely because you're not really on the road. You're not good enough to be. So yeah. you're in the clubs locally with all the other comics. And, and then slowly, gradually, you and all your friends get better. And then you barely ever see each other because now you're all on the road. Ah, okay. So yeah, like you say, yeah. it's kind of it's, it's your approach to it, and like I said, you're you're aware that you're fortunate because the people around you they know they care for you, and they know this is what you're destined to do, and it makes you so happy. So that's kind of plus you're very successful at it, which does certainly help. Well, I appreciate you saying that, but I mean, it wasn't long ago. Like I remember playing a comedy club in Minneapolis. It's the biggest mall in America. It's called the Mall of America, and they have a comedy club, and they also have an amusement park in this mall. And I played this comedy club Saturday night. It's packed. I kill. It's a great show. And then, okay, show's over. So now I'm going back to my hotel room. My hotel is connected to the mall, so I don't have to leave the mall. Now, as I'm walking back to my hotel room, the amusement park is closed, but you can walk throughout it. And I'm literally walking through an empty amusement park at one in the morning after having just killed in front of a crowd, I'm right next to a Ferris wheel. And you're like, what? Talk about being humbled, man, right? Like, shouldn't someone be buying me sh- uh, caviar and champagne on some skyrise roof? So, so stand-up just really humbles you very quickly. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's just like you just got to have a love for doing it and make sure the people back home are cool with you doing it, man. Because as much as you're like, oh, this was great, two minutes later, you're like, oh, God, this is depressing. <laughs> And how, because uh, I'm, I'm loving all these stories because these are all new to me, but I was just wondering what would, I guess it's tricky, but I'm always keen to sort of give takeaways and things for the people who are listening. And I think one of the things I guess is if you have got a family who aren't like yours, who are kind of putting you under pressure to keep that job, what would, advice would you give to someone under that kind of pressure? Because I always say maybe they could work the job and then it's a bit like what you did at the hotel where you're overlapping your stand up with your job until there's a point where something's going to be happen where you've got to make a decision on which one is going to come first. But by balancing the two, you're, there's less financial pressure. But I know people have spoken to me and they come out a lot of peer pressure and it's kind of, it's not related to, so it's always dealing with put downs and little comments and all that type of stuff about getting a real job and, you know, they're just doing drawings or whatever. What would you say to those sort of people to try and develop some sort of mental fortitude against that? Basically, again, that goes back to the passion of it all. It's a scary thing, no matter how you think about it, when you put yourself out on a limb and you go for something that you really don't know. It's like Mark Maron had this great line where he said, oh, God, just sums up stand-up to me. He goes, the problem with stand-up comedy is it takes about 20 years to become a success. He Mm -hmm. goes, but the problem is it also takes about 20 years to become a complete and bitter failure. And you never know which one you're going to be until the night before. (laughs) Meaning like, meaning like you do that one last show, it's 20 years in and you'll know in the morning how that phone call is going to go. You know what I mean? And then as far as keeping your your original job, I said to a, a guy once, another comedian, how do I know when I can quit my day job and just be a comedian? Cause that's so exciting for a comedian. When you quit, I remember my manager who started managing me in comedy, coming to the front desk 
And I, when I had my last day at the hotel and he's like, give me your name tag. I want to keep it. And he still has it at his office from when wow. I worked the front desk. And you know, when I say you, you're just a comedian now, I was broke, dude. I had no money, but whatever money I did have, I was making doing stand up, and it was very exciting and scary. And and to this day, I still get scared. Like I'm right now, I only have book dates up until like uh, May. So my brother-in-law, he's like, "Oh, they're having layoffs at our factory, and anything could happen a year from now." And I whispered to my wife, "I don't have any work lined up after May. So what is he crying about?" But that's just my life and how I live it, and that's just the way it goes. You just you, you can't worry about what other people say, to your point. And mm-hmm. you just have to know that you have a plan, and you're going for something. And it's exciting. And quite frankly, if it doesn't work out, it doesn't take long to catch up to all those people that go out there and get the real jobs. You know, you, you, you're going for something. You're trying for something bigger. And here's the crazy thing. Your friends will act. Some, some of them will act like they want you to make it. But they really don't want you to make it. Some of them you can tell. Because if you do make it, then it just it just means all those things that they wanted to try and do that they never did, that they chickened out, could have came true if they went for it like you did. Boom. It comes down to like you've got to really love it and you've got to be prepared to work extremely hard. It seems like you made a huge amount of sacrifices as far as you gave up the financial security and working ridiculous hours, working really hard and being really committed. And I do try and stress to people, if you're going to get into freelancing, you have to have this mindset of it's a combination of tenacity, consistency and patience because nothing comes easy and nothing comes quick. And to expect, in because today there's, it's instant gratification. People want it quickly and they want it now. But actually, it's not realistic. So I'm quite blunt with people to say, look, if you meet a client or a potential client at networking, it could take you a year and maybe like 20 other meetings before you even come close to landing that account. So you've got to be prepared to put in the long hours and not kind of get disillusioned. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely putting in the long hours and being dedicated. But it it, it all, like I said, kind of stems back to passion because even my own father would always say, he still does. He's like, I was just so amazed at the discipline you had, you know, to, to, to know that you have to do it all yourself, all your yeah. comics. And you just, and again, it kind of goes hand in hand with the passion because if you want to get better, you're seeing what these other guys are doing. And you go, all right, well, I got to do that. The only thing that is difficult is, especially much more now than when I started, there's a huge business aspect to it because of all the social media. Mm. And there are a lot of guys, I see these young guys that are fantastic with social media. So they build up these followings and then they can go do a comedy show and people are actually going to come see them. But their their craft isn't very good because they put the majority of their energy into pumping themselves up on social media. Shamelessly too, man. I mean, shamelessly, just acting like they're great before they are great. And on top of that, these audiences today go and they'll see a guy who's not great but they don't care because they're just more excited that that's the guy from all the YouTube clips or whatever it may be, you know? So it's, it's really trying to find the balance of, you know, maybe not plugging too hard early on in social media. Cause like any other product, you don't have a good product to sell yet mm-hmm. and really focus on your craft, but you know, stay relevant on social media and then slowly build it up when you think you have something to say, or, you know, go the other route and just go hard and heavy on social media and give them a mediocre show. That's, that seems to be what a lot of kids are doing today too. <laughs> no, yeah, I, I've definitely noticed that. It's kind of you. There's a point where they switch to becoming like a personality, and actually the talent that they started out in 
never develops and so they're actually not that great but they've weirdly morphed into this kind of social media spokes spokesperson who has an opinion on things but isn't actually that good but the comedy clubs will book these guys because they just want to get asses in the seats so these guys will sometimes go i must be good the comedy clubs booking me but it's like these some of these uh, comedy clubs are really glorified rental halls some of the low level ones mm. at least but the one thing i wanted to know is when you get on stage i know you love it there anything you do so like when you were first getting on stage that's quite nervous i know a lot of people have kind of imposter syndrome where they get they feel they're asked to give a talk or they're asked to even just go and introduce themselves because they're introverted people freak out and they get really nervous and i know for me personally when i was doing the football coaching or running the hotel i could i had to switch into like a manager mode where you kind of you kind of drop everything and just pre- not pretend, but you have a different aspect to your personality. When you go up on stage, how do you, or how did you overcome the nerves? How do you stay confident? How do you maintain that presence? That's one thing that always fascinated me. Oh, I'd say the biggest thing would be repetition, repetition, repetition. I purposely started New York City. I happen to live there, but it's really the mecca for stand-up comedy because there's so many clubs. So mm-hmm. you just you're, you're just constantly on stage so much that it's almost like I used to be afraid of flying, and then I went on this comedy tour where we had to fly every day for 35 days, and by the end, I wasn't afraid of flying because I was just too tired. And on planes too much. I couldn't be afraid that long. It was too much. I would be, you know. So, and then like my favorite comedian of all time is this guy named David Tell. And he's, uh, if you total up the amount of time he's on stage now, it's probably like I got to be like seven full years of his life has probably been standing on a stage, right? Yeah. So he'd be on every single night, every single night, and he always had new stuff. But like I remember going through a phase like years ago. I was lazy for like one lasted like a week and a half. I said to my wife, I got a new thing. If I don't have a new joke to say, why bother going to the comedy club tonight? I know the old stuff works, so I'm not going to go out unless I have a new joke. And uh, I did that for like a week and a half, and then I went on stage one night, and everything was weird because I hadn't been on in a week and a half. And that's when I realized, oh, okay, so David Tell's going on stage every single night, whether he has a new joke or not, just to constantly break down that barrier. So like, if you see him now on stage... He is as comfortable as if he's eating a sandwich in his kitchen because he's just been up there so much. He's seen everything. And, and that's where I'm at, too, at this point. I've just when I go on that stage, I've just been up there so many times. And when mm. I first started going on early on in my career, you're playing with guys that aren't good either. You're all not good. So you're on these lousy shows and these lousy places. So you're all bombing together one at a time, but somehow collectively together. You know what I mean? Yeah. It only starts to get a little scary when you start to get a little better and you get put on a good show with great comedians and you know you're not as good as they are. And then the crowd starts to like, you know, let you know. That's <laughs> that's a tough time. And then when I started headlining, barely good enough to do one hour stand up. I barely had an hour of material, I should say. And that's only if everything I did worked, which it didn't always work. And like I remember one night being in Texas and these two Mexican guys were opening for me and they lived in Texas. So they're doing jokes about the river and immigration and everybody's dying. And then this New Yorker goes up, hey, how you doing? And like I ate it. I couldn't follow these two little Mexican dudes. And I remember like just like freaking out and being like, oh, God, I have to, two more shows tomorrow and drinking a lot of beer and stuff. And then like 10 years later, I was in a comedy club. 
And the guy's on before me, the MC comes back and he says about the guy on now, he goes, oh, he's doing really well. And I go, oh, great, great, great. And then I kept doing what I was doing in the green room. And I, for whatever reason, it, it, that moment reminded me of, Me of uh, Texas. And I go, holy shit, I remember back when I was younger, when I would freak out watching the guys before me, hoping they weren't too funny and all this stuff. I go, and now... I don't even know what they're doing before me. I couldn't care less because I know they ain't as good as me. And that's just time, 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 and being up there and doing it over and over and over. That's all that is, man, repetition. Yeah. No, that's interesting. I thought it it probably would be, but I just, yeah, like you say, you can't beat putting in the hours and getting comfortable. It is, it's like anything. It's just the, the more you do it, but also you don't try and take it too seriously. You kind of accept this is part of the journey. I've got to get a certain amount out of my system before I can expect to be good at this sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, come on, think about it. Have you ever seen, we've all seen, you ever see a comedian up there who's not funny, but he's acting like he is full of confidence, totally fearless. Mm -hmm. and, and it makes you go, it makes you go, am I missing something? This guy's got a smile on his face like he's killing and he's horrible. But <laughs> because, <laughs> because, you know, he has been up there so much that maybe his jokes aren't funny, but that don't mean he's not comfortable sitting there, you know, standing there. It's yeah, interesting. No, it flips it back because you go, maybe it's me. Maybe I just don't get it. But I think, yeah, a lot of that is, that, that's the big thing. It's pushing yourself to do it. I think is the it's and it's always that element of it being uncomfortable is part of your development. That's the only way you're ever going to get better. Yeah. You have to push yourself into to make it uncomfortable to do. I was talking about like you know that Malcolm Gladwell ten thousand hours of practice to become an expert. And in the book, it's the difference is it's purposeful practice. So it's practice that gets progressively harder, like lifting weights. And it's this mm -hmm. thing of um, the guy who gave the example of there's a darts player over here called Phil Taylor. And he would, to make things harder, he would cover his dart, he would play with a small dartboard, like half the size of a regular one, but he would cover mm -hmm. it in paper so he couldn't see oh, the wow. marks and then play like that, like relentlessly. So when it came back to actually doing it with a normal size dartboard that he could see everything, it was a breeze to him because he's just slightly crazy, but, yeah. but very successful. Yeah. And, and listen, if you don't have the time to do something over and over and, and you're going up to do some speaking engagement, I, the, the small piece of advice I can give, it's just so simple, is just really take a deep breath and put the moment in perspective, man. Like no matter what happens up there, no matter what you say, tomorrow is the sun's going to come up, day's going to go on, nothing, it's, nothing monumental is on the line. Nobody's going to die. There's nothing to be overly afraid of. Just, just, and and you'd be amazed that the people in the audience, they give you such a, a leeway. Not in stand-up comedy, but in life, when you're speaking in front of people, mm. for you to get up there, they, you know, they know how hard it is, man. So it's it shouldn't people shouldn't fear that so much. What's the big deal? No, and I that's a true point, and I think that is that's a nice way to sum it up because I think that's true of everything you should do. It should be kind of what is the worst that can happen you know people they're, they're willing you to do well generally and it's that it's more important yeah. to try and push through and realize actually that wasn't as bad as i thought because that's how you that's the development that's how it improves it's kind of um that is i think the answer is to kind of keep pushing yourself and gain perspective so that's a very nice way of summing up thank you yeah literally an hour after whatever you did is done they're going to move on to something else anyway the attention spans of people this day these days 
There's nothing to fear, folks. No, they're thinking about what they're going to eat for dinner. That's it. They're, they're just completely <laughs> yeah, right? gone. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Pete, thank you so much for being on because uh, you've given me plenty of your time and I really appreciate you sharing well, your insight you, you and your stories. You've many times through the years too, Thad. We're good friends. You've done a lot for me too. So it's more than a pleasure. I'm sorry I was such a motor mouth, man. No, I loved it. Like I said, tell Jackie that the, the answer is just to let you talk and not have me interrupt you. So no, I'm very happy with that. That's really good. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure, man. My pleasure. And cool. for everyone out there listening to us, I want to say thanks so much for listening. And if you go to PeteCorielli.com and you have any questions, if you did listen to this and there's something else you want to ask, I'd be, I'd be happy to email you back. I really would, man. So Yeah, and is it, it MyCorielli on Twitter as well? Is that the one? Yes, MyCorielli, C-O-R-R-E-A-L-E. Yes, perfect. So they can always uh, DM you and you'll, if, you know, if you've got time, you'll get back to them. So that's brilliant. Thank you, Pete. Absolutely. Yeah, my pleasure. Cool. All right, Dad. You take care, brother. Cheers. Bye.